Welcome back to A Bit of Fun with Emily. It's me, your host, Emily. I am glad you're here. This little podcast is a safe space to talk about the movies we love, the good and the bad, acknowledging their issues and celebrating their successes with a healthy dose of nostalgia thrown in for good measure. And because I'm a librarian by day and don't need an excuse to talk books, at the end of our conversation, I'll give you a few book recommendations you might like if this movie is your cup of tea. Before we dive into today's movie pick, 1998's Can't Hardly Wait. I'm so excited to talk about this one. A quick ask. If you like the podcast and want a free and super easy way to support what I do, please consider rating or reviewing the podcast wherever you listen. You can also just share the podcast with someone or someones you know that you think might enjoy the fun as well. Word of mouth marketing. I would be ever so appreciative. So I decided to pick this one because it is the complete opposite of my high school experience. <laughs> I thought a lot about it. I got invited invited to some parties, but I was not a party girl in high school. In fact, I once made it all the way to a party, but talked myself out of going in and then just drove home. Never actually got out of the car. I was shy. I was quiet. Um, I had a lot of different friends and I think I was generally liked by just about everybody, but I was also known as one of the good kids. In fact, some kind of jerk in one of my classes nicknamed me Kool-Aid because I'd just go to Kool-Aid parties. And to be completely honest, I was comfortable going to Kool-Aid parties. I never really had an interest in going to the big parties that you see in something like Can't Hardly Wait. And I was kind of away from all of it anyway. I didn't know who was having them. <laughs> I didn't know where they were happening. Luckily, I was surrounded by a, a group of people who I knew went to those kind of parties. But when I was with them, we just kind of had laid back hanging out moments, you know, that we would go to people's houses and we'd watch movies and we'd talk and we'd have fun. And it was just never a part of my high school experience to the point where I then kind of, I start to ask people as we watch teen movies or we read YA novels, did this happen in your high school? Is this what it was really like? Uh, it's such an exaggerated often um, view of what high school is that I think they actually give teenagers and high schoolers a bad name a lot of times, just assuming they're these kind of heathens that go out and do these wild and crazy illegal things. And I, again, I know that does happen, but I don't think it happens on the scale that pop culture would lead us to believe it does. So you'll also notice that this podcast, this is set in the nineties. I've decided to do in each month an eighties movie a 90s movie, a current movie, which could be anywhere from, I don't know, 2000 to 2023. So something in the 2000s and then having somebody on to have a conversation. And so this is, we're in the 90s, which is perfect because I am a day late with this, mostly because I've been distracted at work. But one of those distractions was I planned a really fun 90s themed event for ladies in Greenwood called um, Galentine's the Tiger Beat Edition. It was a library program. We had it at a local pub. We had different activities from the 90s, like playing MASH, if you remember that game where you try to tell your future. You can make uh, fortune tellers at each table. We had spirographs. We had decorate your own slap bracelets, which I know were in the 80s as well, but people were wearing them in the 90s. You can make these really frilly bows. We did 90s trivia and it was just a lot of fun, but it was mostly just a lot of fun having really cool ladies in one place 
goofing off, enjoying the evening together. And so I was kind of distracted with that, but I think it fits perfectly into today's conversation too about the 90s. So I'm kind of firmly stuck in the 90s. First, it was also unbelievable. Mike Dexter wanted to date me. I know why I started dating him. I just don't know why I did it for so long. Well, he is the most dope guy in school. Yeah, and school's over. This party tonight? Amanda suddenly being single? It's fate. Fate has opened me a window. Got to have sex tonight. It took me all day, but I narrowed it down to a list of ten very lucky finalists. You know what I'm saying? Do you think there'll be any girls there? Are you kidding me? People may even be having sex tonight. Get out back the way! I can outside. Kiss my ass! You seen Amanda Beckett? Yeah, imagine saw her. I'm thinking about asking her out, boy. Oh, God, you're a hot. I filled this with seven bottles of vodka last September. It's been in my freezer for Alright, y'all, check it. Time to get busy. Who does he think he is? Brad Pitt? <laughs> and you're like, Glennon. But with bigger boobs. Totally bigger boobs. I can't feel my legs. I can't feel my legs! Columbia Pictures presents an event. 18 years in the making when you find out who your friends really are I don't think she's prettier than Gwyneth not even what your future really holds I am going to have sex with someone at this party and how one night can change your life I don't know about you but I really believe that there's one person out there and for me it's gotta be Amanda I wonder how it's gonna be there's a mirror right there. Why don't you take a look, okay? You're white. How's it gonna be when you're so I'm not there? Guys like us, we are dying a dozen. It is fate, but it only takes you so far because once you're there, it's up to you to make it happen. Amanda? Can't hardly wait. But without further ado, some information about 98's Can't Hardly Wait. It was written and directed by Harry Elfant and Deborah Kaplan. Looks like they are a creative partner group that met at the Tisch School of the Arts at NYU. When they met at school, they realized that their parents were friends and that they both attended neighboring schools in Philadelphia. A small world. They also worked in 2001's Josie and the Pussycats, 2008's Maid of Honor, and 2010's Leap Year, which is one of my favorite rom-coms of all time. It's set in Ireland. That makes sense. And the lead is kind of grouchy, which also makes sense. (laughs) The movie stars Jennifer Love Hewitt as Amanda Beckett. Ethan Embry as Preston Myers. Kind of a big Ethan Embry fan, or at least I was. He's in a lot of movies that I've really enjoyed. Charlie Corsmo as William Lichter. Lauren Ambrose as Denise Fleming. Peter Facinelli as Mike Dexter. And Seth Green as Kenny Fisher. And what a perfect casting in Seth Green in this movie. It had an estimated budget of $10 million. It made a little over $8 million during its opening weekend and would go on to make $25 million worldwide. 
It was released on June 12th in 98. We've talked about the summer of 98 before during the summer blockbuster season last year. In 98, Armageddon topped the box office, making over $550 million worldwide. Also out that summer, A Perfect Murder with Michael Douglas, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Vegan Mort- Vigo Mortensen, The Truman Show with Jim Carrey, Laura Lenny, and Ed Harris, Six Days and Seven Nights with Harrison Ford, Anne Hesch, and David Schwimmer. It's a horrible movie. Disney's Mulan, and Out of Sight with George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. So reviews... They weren't great for the movie. It has a 41% on the tomato meter on Rotten Tomatoes. Just a reminder, that's the critic score on Rotten Tomatoes. The site's consensus reads, occasionally clever and moderately intelligent, Can't Hardly Wait also contains too many cheap laughs, recycled plotting, and flat characters. Far cry from Certified Fresh. The audience liked it a little bit more. It sits at a 63% with over 50,000 ratings. So a lot of people have watched it. Roger Ebert did not give it a glowing review. In the first paragraph, he writes, There's one character in Can't Hardly Wait who is interesting and funny. Maybe it was a mistake to write her in. She makes the other characters look like nap-brained bozos. Her name is Denise. She's played by Lauren Ambrose, and she has a merry face, a biting tongue, and a sardonic angle on high school. Her classmates look like candidates for Starship Troopers or the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Pictorial. That's the kind of review I've been waiting for from Raj. Uh, he's been too kind, and I know he he had these kind of biters every once in a while, so I was glad to finally find one. But that leads us to our breakdown of the movie by act, a summary in three parts, if you will. We've got act one, the setup, act two, rising action, and act three, the resolution. We're looking at the movie through the lens of storytelling. So act one, the setup. It's graduation day. And they're at the ceremony. Gossip is spreading fast about this big party that's happening that night at a rich kid's house and the breakup of Amanda Beckett and Mike Dexter, the it couple at the school who'd been dating for years. All of this is kind of sound bites over credits and small snippets of kids in graduation gowns, which I really kind of love. It's setting up the entire movie without doing a lot of exposition. They use the movie itself to tell the story, and I love that. So in the first 30 seconds of the movie, we've already got the hook. What's going to happen at this party? And is it really over for this couple, Amanda and Mike? The rest of the first act is getting all of the players on the screen with their independent motivations for the evening and the introduction of the party itself. So there's actually a lot of different plot lines happening in this movie, which I typically really enjoy. First, we meet Preston Myers, a dorky, sweetly sincere guy who is absolutely in love with Amanda. And we also meet his discontented and loner best friend who just wants to get out of Dodge. She's over high school, ready to move on. And that is Denise, the Denise that Roger Ebert loved. Preston is glowing with the news of Amanda and Mike's demise and launches into the story of how he is convinced that they are soulmates because they sat next to each other on Amanda's first day of class and something about Pop-Tarts. I think they both pulled out the same kind of Pop-Tart. I can't remember. But he misses his chance with her when Mike Dexter, the most popular guy in his grade, volunteers to give her a tour of the school. Then back to the present, it's official. Preston has to go to the party so he doesn't miss his chance with the girl that got away. Next up is Mike Dexter, that one and only boy who broke up with Amanda Beckett. And he's with his his bros, his dudes, 
takes no time at all to realize they're all idiots and are used to ruling the school, big men on campus. They're sitting at a, a diner. It's kind of a cool diner, actually. It's one of those like drive-up ones, a little bit like a Sonic, but old school. And they are talking about the big breakup and how Mike dumped Amanda so that he could be free for college, where the girls are ready to party and they're all on birth control, which gets his pals pretty hyped up. And they decide that they're going to break up with their girlfriends, too, as soon as they get to the party. Two more groups to go. William Lichter, Lichter, I'm not entirely sure how that's pronounced. He's a nerd who... He was valedictorian. He was in every single club in school, and he is out for vengeance against Mike Dexter for years of endless bullying. His plan is his plan is illegal, <laughs> but that doesn't seem to be an issue. So two of his equally nerdy and clueless friends are going to incapacitate Mike, I guess, and one of his buddies after William plans to lead them outside and behind the pool house at the party. They're going to chloroform them with chloroform they made in Kim Lab, take off their clothes and then take pictures of them in a lurid and naked embrace. Good for them, I guess, that it's the 90s and William only has Polaroids and not Instagram, but still extremely, extremely problematic. And finally, Kenny Fisher, hip-hop wannabe with short man syndrome, whose one and only goal is to have sex at the party. He refers to himself as Special K. He's got a backpack filled with what he refers to as the love kit. It's just kind of gross. It's got scented candles (laughs) in it. And he's just convinced that what's in this bag is going to help him get laid. So that's all the main players. And towards the end of the first act, they are all converging on the big party. Preston convinces Denise against her will to go. When they get there, Denise tries to do some convincing of her own. She thinks it's a really bad idea for Preston to give Amanda a letter he wrote back in his freshman year that lists all of the reasons why they should be together, which would be kind of creepy if I'm being honest. Some dude I didn't really know just hands me this letter. But Preston, ever the optimist, turns on the radio and hears Barry Manilow's Mandy. It's playing in the background and decides that that's a sign since Mandy is short for Amanda. A short side story here. Uh, I can't, I was back in high school, my freshman year of high school. We went out to California over the holidays to visit my aunt and uncle and cousins that lived in Newport Beach. And while we were there, my aunt, my lovely sweet aunt, comes up to my mom and I and says, I have a night planned just for the three of us. I don't want to tell you what it is yet. I want to surprise you. And so we were like, okay. So we get in the car and my aunt drives us to uh, Universal City, Universal Studios City Walk in LA or near LA. I don't know. I don't understand California, but wherever Universal Studios is. And so we, we go in and we're like, this is awesome. And she goes, no, this is not the surprise. <laughs> and so we're walking around and we get to this theater, this big theater um, arena kind of thing. And we look up on the marquee and it says tonight, Barry Manilow in concert. And she is glowing. And my mom turns to me and she just starts under her breath going, don't you dare make a face. Don't you dare make a face. In all honesty, I did. I mean, I kind of knew who Barry Manilow was, but I didn't have a full opinion of him. But I was like, Okay, Barry Manilow, that's what we're doing with our night. We go in and we sit down and the music starts to play. And then I was like, 
Oh, Barry Manilow. And it is the most vibrant, um, enthusiastic, energetic crowd I've, I'd ever seen up to that point at a concert. There were lots of men with their partners there. They were mad, mad about Barry Manilow. There was a lot of, Barry, you the man. And there was kind of crying. And I just sat there and my mom just kept hitting me in the side of the leg, trying to keep me from bursting out laughing. And it, it was awkward as a teenage girl to be there, not really knowing what was going on, but seeing my aunt very enthusiastic. But as I look back, it was also one of the sweetest concerts I have ever been to. He was a great performer. He was a showman. I now know a lot of the songs that I didn't know at that time. But to watch this crowd just be madly in love with this man and his music was just a memory that I am glad I have and that I get to hold on to. So if you've never been to a Barry Manical Manilow concert, just know that Barry is the man. That's all you really need to know. I'll get off that tangent now, though. So Preston and Denise, they're going into the party. Preston is determined to give Amanda this letter that he wrote his freshman year about how much he loves her and why they should be together. And in no time at all, the party is raging. Kenny is prancing around trying out horrible pickup lines on unsuspecting girls and failing miserably. William has made his way to the keg and gives us the best line in the whole movie. It's terrible. Don't drink the beer. The beer has gone bad. And he keeps guzzling though, which is going to make things interesting later. I remember having that first, that same reaction when I had my first beer. (laughs) I now enjoy it thoroughly, but at the moment it's like, what is this and why do people drink this for fun? Amanda is having a hard time. No matter where she is, she seems to be the topic of conversation. The rumor mill is running amok. People are saying that Mike broke up with her over a year before, and she's been paying him $50 a month to act like they are still together. So it's clear that she doesn't have a lot of people on her side. And Mike's feathers are all ruffled because his buddies were supposed to go break up with their girlfriends, but that is not happening. (laughs) No progress is being made on that front because they're... Girlfriends are gorgeous and they have plans for the summer. And why do they need to break up with them? Preston also just keeps missing his chance to talk to Amanda. Like they keep passing, but he doesn't have the time or doesn't have the chance. And Denise does an amazing job not socializing with anyone. And that ends act one. Before we head on to act two, a quick note. It is worth watching this movie, even if this doesn't sound interesting to you. just to see how filled this party is with 90s stars and those that guys people you have seen before but you have to rush to imdb to identify which is my favorite game while watching anything as i've mentioned before you've got melissa joan hart from sabrina the teenage wish she's trying to get the entire class to sign her notebook she's kind of i don't know she's got Blonde pigtails. Don't know what that look is, but hey, there's um, Sean Patrick Thomas from Save the Last Dance. He's one of Mike's buddies. Jamie Presley from uh, My Name is Earl or Mom, which was more recent, plays the girlfriend of one of Mike's buddies. Brecken Meyer from Clueless or Road Trip is in it. He is the lead singer of a band that's trying to play. They're called Love Burger that's trying to play at the party. Then there's I'm sorry, I don't think I know how to say his last name, but Donald Faison, I guess, from Scrubs and also Clueless, Dion's boyfriend in Clueless. He's also in the band. He's the drummer. 
And even though we don't see them until Act 2, Jason Siegel from How I Met Your Mother is in there. And, um, oh, what's her name? Selma Blair from Cruel Intentions. They are hanging out at the party as well. So just so many. And that doesn't even come close to naming everyone that you recognize or sort of recognize. So many others from a boatload of TV shows and bit parts and movies. So it's worth the watch just to see how many people you actually recognize. But now on for Act 2, the rising action. Act 2 is where everything starts to go awry. There's lots of flashes between characters hopping around the party. I'm just going to kind of give you the basics because it'd be too hard to kind of follow each step. So after getting hit in the head with a pot brownie, Denise heads up to the off-limits upstairs bathroom to clean up, only to find Kenny in there getting ready for a... A sexcapade, <laughs> but the door locks behind them and they're stuck in there. I should note that it's one of those scenarios where a girl is hosting the party and her parents are not there, but I think she had planned for a small affair and now it's a big raging thing she's not expecting. So she's running around the party telling people to get their feet off the table and all of these things, trying to keep the house clean. So she had said that the upstairs bathroom was off limits, but, um, Kenny says something to help her out. So she's like, fine, you can use the upstairs bathroom. So nobody else is really going upstairs, which I don't necessarily believe in the movie, but it, it works for this particular plot line. William, by this point, is super drunk, but is the life of the party. He's become one of the popular guys, the people that girls want to make out with. He's getting cheers for taking shots, and he's kind of dancing like a fool. He's having the high school experience I don't think he'd had up until that point. Denise and Kenny have a row upstairs in the bathroom. They get kind of, uh, turns out they used to be good friends when they were kids. And um, for some reason, Kenny stopped talking to Denise. So she kind of confronts him about that. And uh, they're arguing. And as expected, every time you see two people argue, they eventually will start to make out. <laughs> Amanda's second cousin starts to hit on her, which is really weird and uncomfortable. It's even really weird and uncomfortable for her, which is different for a movie. Preston sees him make a move, though, and assumes that it's consensual and not sexual harassment and ends up tossing the letter in the trash before leaving without trying to find Denise, which always bothered me. <laughs> she came with him and he knew she didn't really want to be there and that he was her ride but he just leaves her. He doesn't even do a lap around the house to try to find her. That upsets me. He's not a very good friend. Never fear, though, with the letter. The letter will eventually make it back into the party on the bottom of someone's shoe. And, of course, randomly to Amanda. There's the shot where it's just following the letter under the feet of people. Somebody picks it off their shoe, tosses it onto a table, and Amanda eventually finds it. Mike, on the other hand, is trying to hit on some girls, but it looks like everyone really thinks he's a jerk, so that's a no-go. He eventually goes outside to pout a little bit, and he finds a former high school sexual legend played by Jerry O'Connell, another guy in the movie, who tells him that college and, I guess, life in general isn't quite what he thought it was going to be. That you know, The girls want smart guys, and he just didn't get the action that he thought he was going to get and that school is hard and um, it just wasn't what he anticipated. Leaving Mike to then question his decision to break up with Amanda, was that the right thing to do? Because um, his name, Jerry O'Connell's name is Trip McNeely, which <laughs> kind of like the name. He's like, he, he had done the same thing, broken up with his high school girlfriend right before college so he could be free. And then he kind of 
later regretted that and tried to get her back, but she'd already moved on. He ends up, um, so Mike decides he's going to try to get Amanda back. She says no, and then he ends up being the butt of the joke, and the whole party is laughing at him, which sends him into a spiral and also snaps William to attention, and he's back on mission. He wants to get his vengeance against Mike. Preston, back to Preston, he ends up at at a drive-in diner. I think the same one that Mike was at earlier and um, tries to call into a radio station with an important question for Barry Manilow. You know, who was Mandy? Why were you writing for Mandy? What do you think? And, but the call gets interrupted by a stripper who needs to use the payphone. The stripper is played by Jenna Elfman. She's dressed as an angel. (laughs) She gives him a pep talk about fate and how it only takes you so far before you have to make something happen yourself. She also does a long story about Scott Bayo, And that's just the boost Preston needs. And he heads back to the party to find Amanda, who has, by this point, found the letter and found it very sweet and is trying to figure out who Preston is. She doesn't even know who he is by name. And that basically wraps up act two. Mike is dejected, Preston emboldened, Amanda officially single and looking for Preston, William is back on mission, and Kenny is making a connection with Denise. Which leads us to the resolution. Act three. It starts at the pool. So after publicly turning down Mike, every guy at the party starts to hit on Amanda, and not sweetly or subtly, just feeling confident or drunk enough to share their every desire. Preston shows back up at the party, rushes to find her, realizes she's going out to the pool. And as he's kind of, it's, it's like a deck high above the pool. He sees her below. He yells out that he loves her and he starts to head down the stairs and he's trying to explain, but she cuts him off, not knowing who he is, uh, but is just tired of guys trying to sleep with her and reads him a riot act, really puts him in his place. And she gets cheers from people and she storms off and, and he decides to leave the party for good. Meanwhile, William finds Mike in a room all by himself and Mike is in tears. He's very drunk. He's in tears. At first he tries to get Mike to follow him out to the pool house, but Mike in his drunken despair leans on William for support and eventually apologizes for the way he treated him. You know, says, I'm sorry. I... He realizes that he was kind of an idiot. And they have this bonding moment where they kind of console one another. And you think, okay, maybe they've turned the corner on their relationship. Upstairs, Denise and Kenny end up hooking up in the bathroom. It's not quite the experience either was expecting. And they promptly start arguing again. One more quick flash as Amanda is leaving the party. She passes Melissa Joan Hart, who's still trying to get signatures in her yearbook. She grabs it from her and looks up who Preston Myers is and then is immediately bummed when she discovers that it was just the guy she tore into out at the pool. So at that point, the cops arrive. In the commotion, (laughs) William and Mike uh, are trying to get away together, you know, they don't really know what they're doing, but they're trying not to get caught. They decide to run out a side door, which leads them to the pool house where uh, William's friends who have been waiting on the pool house roof the whole night, jump off the house, landing on the two very inebriated guys. And because these two nerdy guys lost their flashlights goofing off up on the roof, they were using them as lightsabers and accidentally dropped them. They don't see that it's actually William they trampled. 
and not one of Mike's friends. So they stripped the guys, posed them in a compromising situation, just like they had planned, take the photograph. Then they find one of their flashlights, look to see who it is and discover that it's William instead. And they, um, kind of toss everything down and sprint away also because the cops are coming. The hostess of the party finds Denise and Kenny stuck in the bathroom upstairs. Denise storms out because Kenny's pride is ruffled and he reverts back to his hip hop wannabe persona. The cops find William and Mike, cart them off to jail. William wakes up alone in the cell the next morning, but discovers that Mike had paid his bail, which was really kind of nice, I guess. He later um, finds Mike at a local diner and tries to start up a conversation with him and tries to thank him, but Mike shuts him down and kind of falls back into that idiotic bully bullying part pattern where he's got to look cool in front of his friends. Denise and Kenny make up. They find another bathroom to hang out in. That sounded weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. But they are back together. And Amanda goes to find Preston at the bus station. He's on his way out of town to write to a writing workshop. I think they actually say in Indianapolis, and it's taught by Kurt Vonnegut. He finally gets his moment. She confesses she found the letter. She's bummed he's leaving, and he decides to catch a later bus. And with that... The party is over. I do feel like I skipped around just a little bit towards the end, but it is a little hard to cre recap a movie where there are so many different plot lines and there's no clear cut scenes between them. They just kind of hop back and forth, but I don't think it was too bad. A few interesting tidbits. This was Charlie Corsmo's first and last on-screen appearance since Hook in 1991. He played Robin Williams's son, Jack, in the movie. He was attending MIT when he was offered the role, which fit really well with his character. It was the film debut of actor Jason Siegel. Ethan Embry claims to barely remember fil filming this movie because he was so stoned the whole time. Deborah Cla Kaplan and Harry Elfont who again are the writing partners, wrote the role of Kenny Fisher with Brecken Meyer in mind, actually, who again was the lead singer of Love Burger, who was playing at the, the party. Because of scheduling conflicts filming 54, which also came out in 98, Meyer had to turn down the role. He took a smaller, uncredited role as lead singer of Love Burger. The role of Kenny Fisher then went to Seth Green. The title is a reference to the song Can't Hardly Wait by the seminal 80s rock band The Replacements. The film takes place on Wednesday, the 17th of June, 1998, Barry Manilow's 55th birthday. Manilow's song Mandy features prominently in the movie. And finally, Ethan Embry's character, Preston Myers, confesses to being a big fan of Kurt Vonnegut Jr. at the end of the movie. His yearbook quote, Beware of All Enterprises That Require New Clothes by Henry David Thoreau is also featured in Vonnegut's book, Welcome to the Monkey House. Which leads to the ending questions of the pod. First, would I survive in this movie? I did survive it. I, I think a lot about what it would be like going back to high school as who I am now, more confident, more outspoken, less concerned with what people think of me or what silly expectations modern culture tells me I'm supposed to buy into. But the truth is, there is no amount of money you could pay me to send me back. It's a hard time. Teenagers' brains aren't fully developed and they have hormones raging through their body. And now you pile on social media as well. And this false sense of truth and disgusting entitlement. I just, I am so glad 
that I was a teenager's teenager in the 90s and not today. And I'm sure I would survive again, but I just don't want to know. I don't want to try. So I'm good just leaving that up to a what if, because <laughs> I don't want to do it again. Is this movie believable? For what the movie is and what it tried to be, yeah, I guess so. I'm going to call it as believable as possible with 30-year-olds playing high school teenagers. I it drives me crazy. I don't understand why they do that. It kind of takes you out of it because then they are acting more like adults instead of teenagers. I do really like the multiple storylines happening at the same time, moving you throughout the night, sometimes interweaving, oftentimes not. And it does really remind me of a high school house party, you know, just that there's different things happening, different groups, different dramas playing out in different rooms around the house. Absolute stereotypes. But it's fun and it's familiar. And I, again, I'm just so glad I'm not that age anymore. Does this movie hold up? Generally, I guess so. At least it doesn't fare any worse than any other teen comedy in the 80s and 90s. There are some offensive slurs, but sadly, it's also just kind of true to how teens talk and how they even talk today, how often we have to correct teens in the teen room for some of the things they say. I really enjoy movies that happen all in one evening, and I think they did an amazing job with this ensemble cast and telling these stories. You never, there's not a character that really drops off. I would say the one that maybe comes closest are Denise and Kenny. You kind of forget that they're upstairs in the bathroom. You think the movie's going to be about Preston and Amanda, but that's not really the focus either. They really have these little many plots throughout the movie, and so... In that way, I think it does really hold up well. I Again, I really like movies that happen all in one evening, too. The prop that I would want to take with me if I was starting a pop culture museum, I'm going to go. This one was hard. So William has this little card that he has printed off the internet. I guess the internet or he found somewhere. He could have had the internet in 98. Um, <laughs> that was supposed to tell him if he was drunk or not. I think it'd be kind of fun to have that. He ends up giving it away at the party after he's already drunk. Or the a Love Burger t-shirt. So the band had t-shirts made. That becomes a, a point of argument throughout the story for the band. I think I might like a Love Burger t-shirt as well. It's a fun movie. I hope you want to watch it. If you've not seen it, it's worth it. It's worth a watch to just reminisce what the 90s were like and just to see all of the people that you remember from all the TV shows you were watching in the 90s. And now for the last segment of the episode, book recommendations. And that's the theme for the book recommendation today. Books that happen all in one day or one evening. There's a couple of great books uh, that do happen in the span of a day. There's more that I could share, but I picked two out. They just happen to both be teen books as well, which fits nice in a teen comedy. So first up is The Statistical Probability of Love at First Sight by Jennifer E. Smith. Today should be one of the worst day of 17-year-old Hadley Sullivan's life. Having missed her flight, she's stuck at JFK Airport and late to her father's second wedding which is taking place in London and involves a soon-to-be stepmother Hadley's never even met. Then she meets the perfect boy in the airport's cramped waiting area. His name is Oliver, he's British, and he's sitting in her row. A long night on the plane passes in the blink of an eye, and Hadley and Oliver lose track of each other in the airport, a chaos upon arrival. Can fate intervene to bring them together once more? It's a sweet little love story, and if you've ever had that 
what would it be like if I met someone while I was sitting on a plane or I just had a really good conversation with the person sitting next to you on a plane? Didn't even have to go anywhere after that. Uh, so it's a fun to kind of imagine with that. The second one is They Both Die at the End by Adam Silvera. So on, on September 5th, a little after midnight, Death Cast calls Mateo Torres and Rufus Emeterio. Oh, can't really remember how to say that name, to give them some bad news. They're going to die today. So there's a service that lets people know the day of their death. Mateo and Rufus are total strangers, but for different reasons, they're both looking to make a new friend on their end day. The good news, there's an app for that. It's called The Last Friend, and through it, Rufus and Mateo are about to meet up for one last great adventure, to live a lifetime in a single day. So a couple book suggestions. You can get these at your local public library. If you don't have a library card, you absolutely should. It's a great way to support members of your community. It's a free way to support members of your community, because guess what? You're already paying taxes to have a library card. So Get a library card today and check out the statistical probability of love at first sight or they both die at the end. And with that, we are done for today. Thank you so much for listening. Really, it is so appreciated. If you haven't already, I hope you subscribe so that we can keep going on this journey together. And if you've got the time, it would be awesome if you could rate and review so that other individuals who like random conversations about pop culture with someone who doesn't really know what they're talking about well, they can join in on the fun as well. You can follow me on Instagram at at GnomeGirlM and on Facebook as a bit of fun with Emily. Go have yourself a bit of fun today. <laughs> <laughs>